The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Ryan! <laughs> Hello. Hey, Rodney. Hey, Ryan. So this is Frank. Frank, lovely to meet you. Good to meet you. Yeah, how you doing? Uh, doing great. Good. So, man, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm, I'm glad that we finally got and put this know, together. Right? <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. Um, you're, you're like our first guest that we've had that is, what could we call you, an expert in nature connectedness. Big title, but yeah, all right, I'll take it. All right, cool. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's great because... I think that's really important. And what I wanted to do, if you don't mind, is, you know, as we've yeah. been doing the, the you know, these interviews, in the beginning, we just kind of had this idea, like Frank was like, hey, we should do a podcast and we should mm. kind of talk to people that are interesting because we kind of come from similar idea from different, the same, yeah. same ideas, right? So we kind of like see this modern world and we kind of worried where things are going. But I wouldn't say that we had like a thesis or even like a, posi a position statement. And so I've been I've been working on one. So I kind of want to read that. And then, yeah. you know, you tell me what you think from your perspective. How do you see it? Because I think okay. that's kind of like a good place to start. And I'm going to just uh, assume that Frank agrees with this. <laughs> if not, he can say, well, yeah, maybe not. Right. Maybe not. But like, OK, so I'm reading it as if, you know, basically my, myself and Frank are. Oh, basically, this is yeah. our position statement. All right, so this is this is what I have, right? The predicament we face is less about individuals failing to adapt and more about a system that mandates adjustment to an inherently unhealthy and unsustainable way of life. We're caught in a vicious cycle, constantly nudged to fit into a mold that is itself damaging and deeply flawed. At the heart of this predicament are insustainable greed, material conquest, hyper-competitiveness at any cost, and unbridled consumerism. To clarify, it isn't science and technology that we contest, but rather the paradigm that governs their application and indeed our broader societal functioning. Wow. That's what I have. Nice. <laughs> Frank, are you in agreement with that? Right on the mark, yes. Okay, that's Absolutely. good. Yeah. <laughs> that's good it's interesting i i think I, I i don't think there's anything that i particularly disagree with at all it, you, you kind of bring up for me um what really is at the heart of a lot of what i do but i don't think a lot of people and organizations that reach out to me because they're interested in in nature connectedness kind of really realize that actually it's really accounted to a system that we are part of and it's counter to this rampant consumerism that we just get caught up in um which you know potentially creates a problem if you're a business and that's you know what your modus operandi is right and um that is a big a big thing and i think a lot of people don't really appreciate that um it's a real life adjustment you know i i i kind of look at nature connectedness um as this kind of counter to this pervading worldview that 
you know, we are separate, we're superior to the rest of nature. And when you're separate and superior to something, well, you kind of do what you like with it, right? You can use, exploit it, do do whatever you want. No mm. consequence, it doesn't matter because ultimately you are, it is inconsequential to you. It's just a, a resource to be used. And and people don't really appreciate that until they really start to get to grips with it, I think. Um, so yeah, as a position in terms of going against a system that um, is inherently broken, probably favours a very select few people overall. Does a huge amount of harm and damage to us. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to pull up any particular points to, to kind of disagree uh, mm. for sure. Um, but maybe we can kind of explore it as we go. That'd be quite well, yeah, absolutely. But I, I guess what I wanted to start with is that, you know, because we're using this term nature connectedness. So mm. maybe that's a good place to start. I mean, how would you define nature connectedness? Is it a sense? Is it a state of mind, a way of life? Mm. How would you define it? Well, first off, I think it's a really bad um, kind of uh, term to use, to be honest. Um, many people have kind of questioned it's not necessarily its validity, because I think we're, we're past that stage now in terms mm. of the research. And we can talk about that. But in terms of it being a less than ideal term, a suzerature, you know, this kind of imperfect term to, to describe something. Because simply, you know, the very notion that you kind of describe and say, well, you know, we have to reconnect with something goes against what it is. And it is that, that sensation as you kind of allude to Rodney in terms of mm. you feeling like you belong to something much bigger than you. You are a part of nature and nature is a part of you. And it's about kind of rediscovering that because we've, we've lost that sense. We've become disconnected. We've become isolated um, from the very thing that makes us, us, you know, and, and until, you know, we're, we're no longer uh, human beings. Um, however, that that may happen. If it does, hopefully not. Um, you're always going to be nature. You can't you can't get away from that. And it is that that erroneous belief that we are different. We are separate. That we aren't animals. Um, that we aren't these these creatures that live in this very delicate, very well balanced world and ecosystem. That fundamentally, what happens to it affects us too, and vice versa. So. Nature connectedness is that sensation, and it is a sensation. Sometimes people kind of see it as as this belief or this kind of uh, cognitive um, thing, you know, the style that they think of themselves as "I am this." But it goes a lot, a lot deeper than that. Mm. Um, it really is the feeling you are part of something bigger. But for some people, it certainly is a way of life because it permeates everything about them, who they who they are, who they identify as, what they do, their behaviours, everything about their life. That's probably when you kind of hit that true nature connectedness, if, if we're going to keep using that very imperfect term. Um, sure. ulti- you know, ultimately, it is a nature reconnection, I think, is better. But even then, you know, you're still kind of separating. So, yeah, maybe, there is, there is a, a much better term for it out there somewhere, maybe. Um, I don't have it sadly, uh, and I think it's going to take a bit of kind of uh, getting used to. But as a term, as a way to describe this feeling, I think um, it's accessible to many people, which mm. is a first start. That's good. Sure, absolutely, Frank. Well, I'd like to hear about your research, mm. how that was conducted. Did you take groups of people out into nature? Some people not, and and so forth. How did that yeah. go for you? Yeah. Um, so. I suppose 
it, this is kind of a nice little bit segue to um, what got me interested in it. You know, I've always been quite curious. Uh, my aunts, uh, who used to take me out on kind of walks around the neighborhood, uh, you know, living in England, very, very, very suburban life growing up, um, you know, gardens, parks, that kind of thing was about, about it um, in terms of nature. And I, you know, was just a curious child. And, and actually, my aunt was always uh, keen to impress upon me as I grew up. But actually, it was great taking me out on a walk because you didn't have to go very far. Because it would take us, you know, 20, 30 minutes, an hour to just do a few meters because I was just so curious in seeing where all the little insects are, where and everything else. I've always had this interest, I've always had this connection with the wider world and, and very active in noticing it, which I think has been really important. And it wasn't until I was at university that I, uh, I left with a load of um, ecology and biology students. They were great. They were really passionate about um conservation and protecting the environment and them going out and doing things that were um useful for conservation efforts that that kind of individual behavior which i thought was great but my argument was we need to go beyond that and actually as a society as a world we need to change the way we are the way we act and the things we do and that really sparked an interest in me so um i wanted doing it as a as a whole phd which is great um and for that i've always been really quite interested in the method fitting the design rather than kind of being stuck in one so i've i've used a whole range of different methods based on what question i was asking at the time so um i initially started out for the phd research especially um i was really really interested in lots of people were adamant that nature and nature connectedness was super important for people feeling good and functioning well so their well-being important great um some ideas that maybe it might be related to the kind of behaviors that people do also super important for me one of the you know my main motivator to be honest but no one had really questioned how do we reconnect in the first place because it was always assumed that you just go outside and you stand at a field or you you walk among some trees and then therefore instantly light bulb comes on you are reconnected with nature in this magical you know unsubstantiated way and that really wasn't good enough for me. So I wanted to try and dig deeper into um, how do people meaningfully reconnect? How, do, how does that happen? Um, so, you know, I started off asking people who self-reported and said, I'm really highly connected with the natural world. Um, and I asked them, what do they do? So I used focus groups, things like that to find out. Um, that followed up with um, some reasonable surveys um yeah, three four hundred people roughly um across those to see um what kind of things people were doing and how that correlated how that related to their levels of nature connectedness when we measure it um quantitatively and then that essentially identified um five uh pathways which was what the pathway framework is which i suspect we're going to cover in some depth today um which is essentially engaging your senses um emotively uh kind of experiencing nature um finding a sense of meaning and purpose uh, noticing nature's beauty and ultimately um kind of being compassionate acting compassionately towards nature they seem to be uh according to all that work and we've gone on and done more since they were the key pathways to how people actually reconnect um so i tested that experimentally 
um, using some kind of guided walks. Um, and that actually showed that it was better than simply just having contact with nature, that it was about these pathways and engaging with nature that way that led to kind of um, the higher levels of nature connectedness mm. um, and that. So it's been been a real mix. And I've gone on to do kind of other qualitative work, much, much bigger kind of surveys, um, got a whole program of experimental studies being conducted at present. So yeah, it kind of, it never really stops, um, which is great. But yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag in terms of the methodology. Um, but the good thing about it, and it's something that um, kind of is a present question within science all the time, psychology is definitely not excluded from this, is the idea that actually a lot of the time, a lot of the things that we find, we kind of, um, we can't replicate. We can never kind of find it again. It seems mm-hmm. this this momentary one-off thing. And the good thing, good news is, is that the pathways consistently are shown to be really, really important for uh, the nature connectedness that people have. Um, that's great. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, before we get into kind of just mm. digging digging into that, the pathways, um, my question is, just, you know, based on what you've seen, how have the shifts in our lifestyle and worldview over the past few centuries, how do you see that that's affected our relationship with nature? I think that's really important to situate that before we mm. talk about, okay, this, even though it's an, it's not the best term as we, as you noted, how yeah. do we reconnect, right? First yeah. of all, how has it affected us? So why should we even care? Mm. I think when, when we talk about nature connectedness, I think for some people, they envisage that what I'm, what, me or other people in the field are talking about is the idea that we need to rewind the clock kind of go back in time and live a a real primitive existence Um, the fact that there is a massive push towards urban living across the globe that ain't ever going to happen unless there's some kind of you know apocalypse that takes out all this tech and everything else you know we are not going to regress to that never Mm. and even then we would Um, but it isn't really necessarily about that it's not about rewinding the clock. I think actually it's about creating a new a new relationship because for a long, long time, our relationship with the planet has not necessarily been a very positive one. It has been quite exploitative. And yes, okay, that, that you know, our um, kind of improvements in, te- in technology, culture, all these kind of things that, we've, that we possess that makes us to a degree unique. That has been great for people's quality of life you know better access to sanitation water food you know less um danger from the elements predators whatever it might be it's been great for us it's been brilliant Mm. so we've always kind of used and tried to innovate within nature itself to to survive and that's 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 a real kind of um important characteristic of us as a species but that has gone too far you know we are we talk about you know it being the Anthropocene. <laughs> Humanity has had such a massive effect that now it's measurable in terms of the changes that we're making to the world. You can't make those kind of changes and not expect a consequence, some kind of kickback, because we've kind of pushed things potentially too far. Um, you know, we see it, loss of species, climate change, whatever it might be. You know, you look at the wildfires raging around Europe. You know, people are now freaking out and saying that actually this is this is a thing, this is a real issue. So there's definitely physical um, issues related to that in terms of how we treat the planet, how we act. Um, but also there's there's aspects of identity, purpose, meaning in life. And we've we've removed ourselves from it. You know, 
we're able to talk, you know, across the world right now using this tech. Brilliant. But for some people, it becomes an addiction. For some people, screen time dominates or they just get kind of sucked in because it's designed to fully capture our attention. It's very, very well designed, well created. And that's, that's powerful. But what's the consequence of that to our well-being, our mental health, uh, to our sense of who we are? We kind of lose that. So that, that whole superiority that I mentioned before, that, that kind of that disconnect um, certainly is, is showing to have some kind of deficit to us. You know, there have been, you know, attempts to try and um, kind of talk about things like nature deficit disorder and things like that. It's not my preferred uh, thing. I don't like pathologizing in that way. I've got many, many strong opinions on uh, mental health care and other such things. But, you know, I don't think it's it, it, it's really a disorder, but it's it's a useful term because it helps to capture that there is a, an issue here. But that actually, because of the relationship we have, one that exploits, one that uses without thought, one that consumes without consequence, you can only go so far with that. Mm. You know, there's going to be entropy. You cannot constantly keep consuming, keep using, and so we're going to lose things. We are we we are losing all these species in the sixth great mass extinction. What's the consequence of that for us as a species? Many people identify with particular environments, animals, plants, whatever it might be. What happens when we lose that? You know, that ultimately is, you know, I'm very, very on board with E.O. Wilson on this in terms of it being a part of our genetic heritage. You lose that and you lose a sense of you. You lose a part of you. And so I think we're only just seeing some of the the negative consequences in terms of um, not only its effect on the planet and our physical safety and security, because you know ultimately when we talk about saving the world, it doesn't really capture it because we're saving ourselves essentially. We're saving our way of life. The planet will probably get on pretty well without us, to be fair. So actually it, it is more about saving what, what we care about and I think that that is a crucial thing, and a lot of it is to do with our way of life. Mm. And so, yeah, so so we, we we are seeing physical issues, but we're now starting to see mental and well-being ones as well. You know, we know that some of these positive relationships with nature they not only improve people's mental health, their well their well-being. That is very very well established right now in terms of literature base. There's hundreds and hundreds of studies being done showing the same thing over and over again. We also know that it acts as a protective factor. We know that for um, adolescents, for example, there's a study done in uh, Canada that showed that um, levels of, of adolescents or teenager um, nature connectedness dropped, but those that had, but actually that their nature connectedness was important as a protective factor against the onset of more serious mental health issues. So we know that it, it plays a role. And I mm. think the loss of the natural environment, the idea that maybe we are better suited to functioning and uh, are more adapted to more natural settings. And so there are these mismatches within the urban environment that create potentially will, will have an issue for us. There is a whole plethora of things and kind of a negative consequence in terms of we lose a part of us that is really, really important. What happens to us as a result? We change. We are depleted. You know, we, are, we are not what we could be. Yeah, I think that's a really solid base, Frank. Oh yeah, I'd be curious to hear 
um, what you think. There's been some talk about pulling this into the medical system and physicians now actually writing what the press is calling green prescriptions. Yeah. So you go in to see your doctor and you say, I've got this anxiety or whatever it is. You got one fit in the quagmire of mental health. And the doctor says, okay, here's a prescription to go to the nearest national park. So mm. medicalizing nature. And is, is that a solution? Is that the right direction? Um, I think it can be in a way. I think, I think there's a, there's a potential danger. And fortunately, I've, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with um, a doctor here in the UK who's working on uh, creating uh, these kind of um, nature connectedness based modules for green prescriptions for patients to prescribe them and essentially to teach general practitioners here, medical doc doctors, actually the value of it and why, it, why, it, why it's important, why it's powerful. I think ultimately, and one of the points I made is that you can do some amazing things potentially with nature. You can transform people's lives by immersing them, connecting them, reconnecting them with it. Um, but getting into that stage, you've got a real danger of kind of trivializing our relationship with nature, how we're interacting with it, because it's just seen as this kind of, for want of a better term, people see it as, uh, we would call it here, hippy-dippy type stuff. You know, very, very kind of tree huggerish, very kind of unsubstantiated, a bit woolly, not necessarily something that they they kind of really buy into and they'll kind of they'll do it or they'll just laugh it off. They won't be won't be interested. Um so there is a danger of that. Uh, of kind of either making it seem like a joke, which is not going to be great um for people's engagement with it and reconnecting. But you can also then, that feeds into the idea that um, nature is just another resource to be used and it's there to fix you and nothing else. And I think it re ultimately, as, as I said, it's, it's brilliant to use that kind of stuff, but anything that we do, we need to be focused on helping people meaningfully reconnect with a lost part of them. And if you're not doing that, what's the point? You are trivializing it. So I think I think it's, it's definitely a way... A useful way forward because as i was reminded for a lot of people they don't necessarily believe what you say they believe what they experience and so actually being able to experience that when because to be honest with you if nature is being really really beneficial for them for their mental health well-being physical health whatever it might be probably says that they've been lacking that engagement with it that that, that reconnection with it in their life so you are giving them something potentially really really powerful that can have a huge change for them um, and, and within them so i definitely see it as a potential area to benefit i think there are issues where you either trivialize it or or, or it just becomes another resource and that that ultimately is part of the problem so potentially you are kind of uh, supporting that inadvertently which you know happens a lot in terms of in terms of anything to do with the nature field because we are a lot of the time researching it or applying it or coming from this dominant paradigm of the disconnect so if you're mm -hmm. coming at it from that perspective that that disconnect will just run throughout and it's always going to be about consumption and exploitation as a result mm -hmm. 
So on that, Ryan, have you thought about, you know, we were talking about like people perceiving it as being some kind of like tree hugging experience, <laughs> right? Yeah. Have you thought about like, how do you get people to see it differently? Like how do you convince the average person on the street mm -hmm. who is in, a, a, in nowhere near a, a natural environment? Yeah. How do you get them to understand that actually this is really good for them? Have you thought about like that? What would be a strategy would you think would be a, a good way to go on that? Because mm. like I even I've even kind of felt that, right? It's kind of which is interesting. So I'm on the Isle of Man. We have abundant nature. And yeah. even trying to get people here to understand what we've been talking about, they don't they don't get it, right? They've nature's on their back doorstep, but it's mm. like, yeah, but I go for a walk. But like what you were saying earlier, it's not just about going for a walk, right? It's the intention behind it. So how do you can start convincing people that it's more than just just a walk in walk in the park, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. I we have the same problems here in in England, everywhere else. I think a lot of it is to do with noticing. I, I think people just don't pay attention to what's around them. When you know, when we're talking about some of my research earlier. Uh, a lot of that has not been done in wilderness or areas of pristine natural beauty. We have the areas of natural beauty in the, in the, in the UK, these national parks and things like that. The research wasn't done there. It was done mostly in urban environments. Hmm. So people were able to reconnect and find those meaningful, that meaningful relationship wherever they were, which I think is a really important thing to note. My most powerful nature connection experience was done, well, happened in... Um, just opposite where I work, down at Nottingham Trent. And that is a city centre campus. You know, we are bang, smack, smack bang in the middle of, of the city centre. And so actually, you know, I was there, fed up and tired because it'd been a long day, lots of screen time. Everyone around me, as I was waiting for a tram, were kind of um, looking at the phones, you know, not paying attention to everything that was around them. I was because I needed, you know, a release from that. Mm. And all of a sudden, um, I saw a peregrine falcon, so it was a bird of prey, shoot down from the top of the Trent building where they nest um, part, half, uh, halfway through the year. Shot down and it caught a pigeon mid-flight, maneuvered its way around a lamppost you know, and flew away. And just the flash of colour, the exhilaration that I felt seeing that and just the awe that I had for that, for that bird surviving in this human-dominated environment, it was fantastic. So many people miss that. You know, and you cannot part part of the issue that that I sometimes have is when I try to create interventions to try and reconnect people. Nature doesn't run on our clocks. You know, I'm reminded of uh, you know, growing up, I was a big fan of uh, Jurassic Park, which probably explains many many things about me. Um, you know, and the and the whole thing of you know, are you actually going to have dinosaurs on this tour? Because they don't play by our rules, and you know, anything to do with nature, you know, it doesn't work when to our clock when we want it. So we have to be active and seeking these experiences sometimes. And I think you're right. I think there's very much a an issue in terms of, for certain groups, the message and the way it's framed is not good. It switches people off. Part of that is because, to be honest with you, you know, in the UK, lots of places right now, you know, cost of living crisis, people are struggling to, to make ends meet. They won't give a damn about nature at that point because they're literally trying to survive you know what what importance does it have for me right now when i'm trying to feed feed my family or you know get a better job or wh whatever it might be 
And so actually the way that sometimes we we message and frame it all um, is done, to be honest, quite terribly. A lot of the time in our research and and colleagues and peers and others do, the people that they include within their studies, and it's happened to me, you know, you are essentially working with people who are already invested, who are already converted, who already know that nature is positive for them. And that's 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 the issue. You know, nature connection research tends to attract females and those with a reasonable high level of nature connection already. Um, generally, kind of middle-aged. They aren't necessarily the people that, that we need to reconnect with because um, we know that actually for, say, for teenagers, we have this notion of a teenage dip. The level of nature connection kind of goes reasonably high in childhood and then it dips right down in adolescence. And it takes till about your 30s, 40s for it to recover to where it was when you were a kid. So we know that actually it's a protective factor, but we know that it drops massively. Lots of reasons for that, but potentially that, that is an issue. What would the what would some of the reasons be for that, Ryan? Like, why would that happen? Do you think? I mean, puberty is a massive thing, of course. Sure, sure. You know, massive changes, um, but I think there are other things. There's a lot of pressure in terms of um, you know academic achievement at that time. Mm. Uh, your interests are changing. Your sense of self, your identity is shifting. So there are certain certainly changes, but then I've come across projects where they've engaged young people in really powerful, meaningful ways. You know, having uh, skaters. And document the nature that is around them and they start to reconnect with with the areas around their skate parks and the places where they skate and they make a, a mini documentary about it so it's really really quite quite moving so i think that's 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 super powerful though right mm. so maybe what you're saying there that's really important is that people need to be a little bit more innovative and creative with their ideas yeah. and uh, rather than trying to change people per se is finding yeah. what they already do and then using that as the base to get them to, quote unquote, reconnect with the natural yeah. world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's partly my my approach has always been, we've just got to, you don't necessarily have to change what you do. You just have to make sure it's focused in the right way. So that the pathways uh, that I created through my research that I mentioned earlier, they are a framework. They're not a prescriptive thing. It's not like you have to do this particular activity if you want to reconnect with nature. Actually, what it really is is a framework that can be adapted as it can take existing things people do already mm. and actually just reframe, refocus. So if you weren't using your senses before when you're gardening, smell the flower whilst you're doing it. Or, you know, when you're out walking, you know, touch the bark of a tree, you know, to, to, to just start to ground yourself, feel something different. Um, so this would this would be a really good point, like for you to kind of outline what that framework is, so that people know. Yeah. What it is. So essentially, the pathways framework came out of my PhD. So all those studies that I briefly mentioned earlier was all about how do we meaningfully reconnect with people, and um, eventually uh, we identified five particular. Um, they're, they're essentially value informed ways of reconnecting. Um, seem to be at the time and we've gone on to show that yes they definitely are they are some of the most powerful ways to reconnect and in some ways it kind of taps into just how people form meaningful relationships with the world around them anyway um that's ultimately what it, what it is as well it's about that relationship you have so essentially they are you know engaging these senses emotively connecting finding meaning purpose um acting compassionately and appreciating beauty 
Now, these pathways themselves, um, we've used them um, across the world. There's lots of um, organizations that have adapted them and have adopted them for their own purposes. Um, in the UK, the National Trust have been a real big pioneer in this. Um, they use them um, across their sites uh, to reconnect people in outdoor-based activities. Um, Dural Wildlife Conservation Trust, they use it in some of their conservation work um, to re-engage people, but also at their sites, you know, they've got a massive um, kind of uh, zoo slash conservation uh, set up in Jersey. And uh, they have a butterfly house based around Pathways of Beauty, for example. Mm. They really, really tap into it. So it gets used, it gets used in forest bathing uh, practice and all, all sorts of different places. The pathways themselves are really good because you can take, say, I don't know, um, a citizen science activity where you're just doing a, a moth count or an insect count or something like that. And actually, you can still do that, which is great, but actually just noting down the quantity of an insect probably isn't going to reconnect you. But if you start to you know, appreciate how beautiful the moth is in terms of its patterns, the softness of its wings, maybe uh, you know, you kind of, you start to reflect on the role that that moth plays within the wider world and you can kind of start start to relate to it and and value it just for being a moth you know you're finding a bit of meaning purpose in it and it's in, in yourself whatever it might be you can do that whilst you are counting insects and then you get a much more powerful reconnection with that particular species so the framework can be adapted and adjusted to suit whatever activity you're doing because as long as you are noticing and you're you're engaging in a meaningful way, rather than it just being this passive thing that you do, which kind of goes back to Frank's point about green prescriptions. You know, for a lot of people, they'll be given a task, go walking in, in nature. They'll do it, they'll rush through, headphones in, whatever else, phone, whatever it might be. They're not going to meaningfully re reconnect. But actually, if you are taking the time actively to use these pathways, you're going to start to relate to the world around you. That's That's really, really important. But probably can also make the argument that unless they're connecting meaningfully in the way that mm. you're describing, the health benefits are not going to arise for them anyway. Probably not. I mean, you'll get physical health benefits from moving more. But we know that actually edge connectedness is probably not as important for physical health. It's about the activity you're doing, you know, physicality. For your well-being, massively important compared to simple contact. So, yeah, you know, if you're not getting that meaningful reconnection, your sense of meaning and purpose, your your joy, your vitality, whatever it might be, you're not going to get that. Mm. And I think going back to your point, Rodney, about the issue in terms of how do we get the real unengaged people, when we do get them, we know that they benefit tremendously. You see huge spikes in the outcomes and their, from nature connectedness shoots right up, but also their well-being the mental health etc all these benefits go right up to so actually those that need it the most probably benefit the most but they are the least engaged and i could say oh you know why don't you uh, be more be more compassionate in nature loads of people switch off and time to go do one you know go away whatever it's, it's crazy i'm not interested in that it's all soft and woolly and horrible you know it it just doesn't work and i think part of the issue that we have is that we are preaching to the converted so to speak to some degree you know and there are lots of organizations that look at the breakdown as to where people sit in terms of their values their priorities things like that so there's a really good um, group called cultural dynamics that do lots of work on um, the various different 
sections of society and where where people sit. And they have three um, kind of broad uh, classifications for people. Um, the first is is those that are kind of seeking uh, security, safety. You have those that are very interested in um, new experiences, boosting their well-being, all that kind of stuff. And then you have people that are very that are, are very focused on their kind of um, moral development, thinking about kind of um, you know these moralistic arguments, their place in the world, all that kind of stuff. A bit bit more philosophical. Um, nature connectedness really taps into those that are interested in philosophy and also a moral stance in terms of what are we doing to the planet? How can we better protect it? How can I be a better me? That kind of thing. It also, because of the well-being angle, taps very much into new experiences for people, improving them, their well-being, all that kind of stuff. So we know that those two broad kind of classifications of people, it speaks to. And it's very easy to frame your arguments around that. And you can get them involved. So if they were they were given a green prescription or they were just, you know, enticed to do some pathways-based interventions, they'd be all up for it because they they could see the value for them for what's really interesting for them. For those that are probably in the in the kind of safety security mindset, it's not gonna be there. You know, and you know, if we talk about nature, a lot of the time uh, people when they're really passionate about it, they talk about, you know, the need to save species, the need to reduce climate change, you know, all this kind of stuff. That will not fly for them because it probably means they will see it as loss of jobs, loss of opportunity, and actually they've got much bigger things to focus on right now. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Well, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about like, I guess, so one way to try to shift the needle, so to speak, is to, mm. first of all, find ways for people to reconnect in their environment, wherever they happen to be. And I like the fact that you said it doesn't have to be, you know, outside yeah. in the countryside. Um, yeah. Also to make it that it doesn't cost anything, right? That it's not going to cost them anything. Because if people are, I'm assuming that in that that, that kind of quadrant of the survival kind of mm. space that people are in, there, there are going to be some people that are tipping over to, to, the, to the next tier, right? Yeah. And I guess that's where some work could actually be very successful. With those people, if you could get them to do it in the environment that they find themselves, do it in such a way that it's not going to cost them anything, you might be able to convert some of those people over mm. to being more in line with or open to reconnecting with nature. And I would think also you'd need to be quite careful because I know the demographic you're talking about. You would have to be quite careful on how you situate that, how you write about it, how you present it, right? Because if it comes across too flowery, you've lost them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not their fault per se. It's just that, you know, the, the place where they are and the societal pressures that are pressed upon them naturally makes people that way. Exactly. And, you know, your initial thesis at the beginning talked about the broken system mm. and the pressures that put some people in the, you know, all the expectations, the requirements that people have in their life. You know, in some ways, we've been come so removed from this natural world to which we belong that it, just, it, it doesn't impact them directly, or at least it won't for quite a while until probably it is too late. But it isn't going to really be uh, an easy fix to reconnect them to solve well-being, mental health issues, whatever it might be. Mm. And so, yeah, removing some of that, you know, even 
even the framing of some of these pathways that that I developed when we were thinking about some of the the phrases, the terms to use. You know, when I've worked with um, organizations that talk about messaging, framing, etc., they were like, "You got to be careful with uh, compassion because it, it switches people off." Even that is is deemed really, really flowery. So sometimes you have to try and think around and find better ways of articulating things. And ultimately, yeah, I agree. It isn't their fault because they have so many, so many pressures, so many things coming out of them. What do they care about? Some scientist guy coming around and telling them they should be doing this differently. You know, yeah, okay. I, you know, I come from a working class family. You know, I know what it's like to kind of um, struggle to, to, to survive. But I'm in a very privileged position right now in you know, where, I, where I work, what I do, etc. So, you know, finding ways to really help engage people like that, I think is, is, is difficult, but it isn't impossible. And I think part of it is, as you say, you know, getting people when they're kind of tipping over into the next kind of uh, sphere of interest is, is an easier task. I think having particular figures, notable community leaders, whatever it might be, to show the benefit of that, I think is 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 potentially a really powerful way to go. Um, because it's very easy for us to come at it from an outsider. You know, and uh, one of the things that I'm always conscious of is that a lot of the nature connection connectedness research is very Western dominated. That's 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 a big problem. Um, and maybe maybe we'll talk about that if we have time. Um, you know, there are issues there in terms of this this insider outsider perspective and so actually reaching people where they're at framing it to make it both see a reason for them to do it in terms of not necessarily always benefit but a, but a reason for it you know an outcome or a way of making it resonate with them i think is is really key and we might not always do that and when we try and do that we need to think about how we do communicate because people who engage in research whether it's arts-based, science-based, bit of both, it can be terrible at, at kind of communicating things. So actually finding a way, a better way to do that, being mindful of it, I think is really, really key. Um, and there are people pushing for that kind of thing. But I think ultimately, until all those sections of society that I mentioned earlier, nature connect connectedness becomes kind of the norm, just a normal everyday thing. Mm. You know, it's going to be very, very difficult. And that's, that's one thing that, that I should impress is that a lot of the research that I've done and others have done, time doesn't really matter. And so it isn't even a, a question of, oh, I've got to spend hours and hours a day going out, engaging with nature, connecting with it meaningfully. Time really isn't important. It's what you do that mm. really counts. Yeah, that's and even, powerful. Yeah, and, and even those kind of small kind of things, those, those little everyday activities people can do takes five minutes two minutes at a time it's about having the mindset and being open to it and having that ingrained within you it's just a habitual thing that you do hmm. okay. when i go outside i actively notice i can't help it i'm curious i'm interested i'm fortunate to have that you know training people helping them to, to be like that just as, as a normal thing i think is probably one of the best ways because ultimately if they experience the positives they experience that awe, that that reconnection that sense of joy, meaning, whatever it might be, that's probably how you really get them. Mm, that's so, yeah, really good. Yeah. Frank? Yes, well, I'm interested in sort of, um, 
you might say the next step or what mm. happens if we actually succeed at this step. Um, you, I'm sure you're familiar with Aldo Leopold and his famous passage is that one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Yeah. And that's, that's what happens for me personally, because I go out in nature, the popular press is saying, oh, you're going to have all these benefits from being in nature. You're going to feel less anxiety. Your body's going to work better. Da, 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 da. But what happens to me is that comes. And then the thing that comes next is the anger and the rage and the mm. bitterness of seeing what we're doing to it. And yeah. people are talking about that. I mean, I get furious when I see the, the extent of the damage and and that's precisely because i've had that experience of being connected so what's your take on all that yeah so again there's another kind of push in some uh areas of research uh where they pathologize it again they, they call it eco-anxiety this idea that you are anxious about um the state of the planet the harm that's being caused and everything else to be fair <clears throat> I do have some issues with anxiety in terms of it as a diagnosis anyway, because I think a lot of the time people are acting rationally to the things that are going on. And yes, sometimes it can be imagined, whatever else, but their response is justified. And I think when you pathologize that, it doesn't really, really work as well because you're turning something that is a normal reaction into something that is abnormal. Mm. And so, you know, when it comes to eco-anxiety in particular, I I feel it too. I totally get why people get really anxious about the future state of things. You know, there's been a lot of research that has done been done under that umbrella. And it's interesting. You see um, the younger generations who kind of talk about eco-anxiety or, or start to, to kind of speak about it. And this, this seems to be universal. I was working with um, students from um, Yonsei University in, in Korea. Um, part of like a, an exchange program and uh speaking to some of the pref professors there they were talking about a real shift in terms of the generations where there's real anger from younger generation i think they call it generation alpha um this this generation who are angry they're they're really fed up and i could use many expletives about the way that the world is now and that the adults around them seem to not care and don't don't want to do anything about it. They just let it burn. They've let it rot. Um, and it's the same here. It's the same all over the world. Yeah, we know that in some respects, adolescent levels of their connection with nature, their relationship drops. doesn't mean that a lot of them don't care. And they really, really do. It really directly affects them. So they are angry about it. And they feel as though they're just being sold at the river, so to speak, because um, they have no power to do anything about it, but they're the ones that it's going to impact the most. And I think the whole idea of being angry and feeling the pain of what's happening to the planet around us um, is a legitimate thing. But ultimately, it is a, um, a consequence of our relationship that we have. And this is why when people talk about, you know, nature connectedness, it's this kind of, some people see it as a silver bullet that will fix so many problems for people. And I have to say, no, it doesn't always. Because what you're dealing with is one of the most powerful forces that humanity has. And that's our ability to form meaningful relationships with 
human and non-human entities alike. You know, we are social creatures and it drives so much of our behavior, has a massive impact on us. And so there is a dark side to nature connectedness, so to speak. And this is one of them. The idea that actually higher levels of nature connection, and they have shown this, these two higher levels of anxiety and uh, fear about what's going to happen to the planet. They, they've shown that, and it, it was an underreported study, I'll have to dig out the, the reference, but the essentially they found that if your relationship is about kind of feeling better about yourself, improving your well-being, that's what your, your nature connectedness is for. Nature connectedness is great. The higher the level, the better it is for you. Where your relationship is based on a real meaningful sense of place and relationship with the world around you, that's what it's all about, rather than a, a benefit for you per se. That's where your 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 high levels of fear and worry about the future come in. And it really is something that I don't think researchers really acknowledge enough, because we do go, and it's a bit ties again into this green prescription thing. Potentially, you're getting people more engaged and reconnected with the world around them. For some people, hopefully, they will meaningfully reconnect and they will foster a real strong sense of relationship with the world around them. If they, if that is related to trees or whatever in their local area that then get cut down as a result of council planning or damage to property, whatever else, that's going to cause issues for them. But maybe we didn't originally intend to happen. So actually you are unleashing quite a potentially strong force um, in nature connectedness that there are consequences if you go, if you are seen as quite high, if we measure it quantitatively in terms of you will be a lot more open and prone to real potential despair, anger, frustration because of the state of the planet, because ultimately you are so, you actually have realized this, this kind of real sense of, you and nature being one and the same. So if you chop down a down a tree, it's like taking off a limb, you know, all that all that kind of kind of thing. And you know, Alder Leopold really is kind of one of the forefathers of nature connectedness. You know, he it was his work that actually inspired really the field, especially within psychology in particular, um, where where it's come to today. So actually not recognizing the consequence, that dark side, if you want to call it that, of nature connectedness is something that we do need to acknowledge. And how you fix that? We don't know. The only, the only, the only thing I've ever come across in the literature is the idea, as you say, Frank, you get, you get angry about it. For some people, that is that is the only way to actually deal with it positively, because anger can then lead to action to then feel like actually you are making a difference while doing something. But for many people, it can simply be despair and heartbreak. Mm. You know. Yeah, so as we come to the top of the hour here, Frank, anything else? I don't want to keep Ryan longer. <laughs> I, I just had a quick thing, and that's, uh, have you noticed that some of these uh, recent protest marches, some of the banners that people are holding up that say, we are nature defending herself? Mm. And I, I just find that breathtaking because that is the ultimate identification with nature. Yeah saying we are nature we aren't outside of nature we are nature fighting back for our own survival and for me that is just incredibly inspiring so yeah and and actually i think that really cuts the heart of it <laughs> that the true reconnection with that lost part of you is that you are nature and nature is you 
you know, we, we're currently trialing some interventions that really focus on that, the identifying with not only with nature, but as being nature and using couch strengths and other such, such things to really tap into that seems quite effective. Um, so I think actually as a, you know, as a way of exemplifying that, putting it across, I think, yeah, that, that, that is ultimately the crux of what nature connectedness is going, okay, this, this is me and I'm fighting back against a real physical threat to me and me extended in terms of the natural world. Mm. Yeah. That's that's really great, Ryan. So I want to I want to respect your time. I just got one more thing, just, <laughs> just one little thing. Um, if I if memory serves me correct, isn't there an online course that people can do with the pathways? I mean, which is not the University of Derby? Is that where yeah. one? Yeah, that's right. So now I don't know because um, I moved on from Derby in twenty. I think it's still there. It's a 16. free course, right? It's yeah, a free yeah. course. Yeah, so it's 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 a massive open online course. Or yes, there we go. On Nature Connectedness. So I helped write that with uh, Miles Richardson and uh, Holly Ann Passmore, um, my colleagues. So um, it is available um, online for free. You can take it. I think Derby did turn it into some kind of monetarized thing elsewhere. So I don't know whether that, that that's a different version or extended, but the one that I worked on was still based at Derby. So yeah, it's a free course. It talks about Nature Connectedness, the pathways, the research mm -hmm. involved, how you measure it. Um, if you're really interested in doing work using nature connectedness and trying to help meaningfully reconnect people, there are um, there is a module based on how you can actually do it and assess it and see whether actually it's made a difference or not. So yeah, there is a there is a. I don't have the website to hand, but I'll I'm go sure and find it. I'll find it find and I'll it. stick the link underneath the mm. video. So for anybody that's interested, they can go and go and go and do the yeah. course. Do it for free. Yeah, why not? Yeah, cool. and I think actually opportunity, as you mentioned before, having things that are just open because mm. it shouldn't. People have to make a living. I appreciate, but this is potentially really radical stuff because it goes against a lot of things, whether it's institutions and systems that really oppress and damage people, or also giving people a new lease on a life that they didn't even know that they had. Um, yeah. No, I love it, man. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Ryan, that was amazing. Um, I hope we can do it again because I, I definitely feel yeah, there's yeah, like yeah, a yeah. second part here for sure. So I'm, I'm going to let you go, but uh, <laughs> thanks for the time. And then yeah, thank I'll, you I'll, I'll let you know when it's up. Brilliant. Love to thanks. meet you, Frank. Cheers, Ronnie. Hey, good to meet good, you. Man. Good to thanks, see you, Ryan. Man. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Hey. Cool. So what did you think? Great. So, yeah, so Ryan, Ryan was my uh, MSc supervisor for my um, master's in nature connectedness um, under the rubric of health psychology at uh, De Montfort University. He's not there anymore. He's at right. Nottingham Trent, but he was my, my main supervisor. Right. So that's the connection. And, uh, you know, as you can see, very knowledgeable, an amazing supervisor because he just, you know, lives and breathes it. And yeah, so yeah. really great person to kind of st steered my research and uh, yeah, super thankful. And what he did for me was amazing because he left the Montfort University to go to a new job and he didn't have to and he stayed on as my supervisor. So that was really great. I, I mean, I appreciate that. Hey, Dr. King here. Thank you for joining myself and Frank on an exploration in improving the health of the human animal. To find out more about our work, 
You can visit frank at exuberantanimal.com for coaching with me, gear, and to find out more about the Human Animal Project as well as my retreats, go to drrodneyking.com. Until next time, be wild, be free.